I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Today we are going to be continuing our I Believe series. This is week three. And we're using the Apostles' Creed, which Adrian just read, to help us look at the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to be zooming in particularly today on the, on the start of that second sentence in the Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And where I'm going to take this is we're going to take a little while to just look at each of those individual words and their meanings, and then we're really going to focus in on what it means for us to declare and believe that Jesus is our Lord. So right at the start here, I want to ask you all to just take a a moment of personal reflection, really, as to what you would say that sentence means to you. If you're a Christian here this morning... Maybe think about that time in your life when you moved from unbelief to belief. Was it a one-off moment that you can particularly pinpoint? For me, I was 15 years old, and I remember I'd taken a walk through the fields out of the back of where I lived, and I was in a large field in front of a big oak tree, and it was at that moment I said, yeah, Jesus, I want to serve you. I want to choose to believe in you. I want to ask you to come into my life and be my Lord. It was on the back of a series of assemblies we'd had at our school, and I knew that I needed to make a commitment to follow him. Some of you will be able to pinpoint that moment in your lives. Others of you, it might have been a more gradual process of moving from not really believing, or maybe you were children and you took um, a step of belief at some point. But each of us needs to have taken that step at one point in our lives in order for us to become Christians. My challenge for you today is not so much about what happened then, but more about what does it mean now for you that Jesus is your Lord? How did it change your life when you initially made that confession of faith? How does it affect your life now? So just um, as we sort of like look at at the creed, I just want to remind us and reinforce that creeds are not scripture, so they don't carry that same authority and weight. But what they do do is really to help us to identify what we believe, to give words to our beliefs, to affirm truth, and to confront error. So the Apostles' Creed, as James has previously explained, was not written by the Apostles, but it's a summary of their teaching. And it's widely accepted as a baseline of beliefs of what all Christians would purport to believe. The way that we actually act that out in terms of how we meet, how we live out our lives can be slightly differently, but we would all say underneath that that's what we believe. 
And that's why we're looking at this as a church, because we recognise that what we believe really matters. We want to make sure that we're growing in our belief. And at the same time, there's this sense of us joining in with others who believe the same thing. So that being understood, let's take a look at this, first sec- this next section of the creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So the name Jesus. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that names and meanings often have a huge significance to us. In the Bible, definitely this is the case. Often it's really worth looking into the meanings of people's names. And to a certain extent, we have that in our society as well. When we have a baby, we take time. We have those little books that tell us all the meanings, and we tend to sort them based on that. And I was actually called Emma because my dad had a dream that he had a daughter called Emma. And I think after that, my parents thought, yeah, okay, we should call her Emma. And that is probably the only thing that that my dad shared with Joseph, that, that he was also told in a dream. Joseph was actually told by an angel. I, I don't think my dad was told by an angel to call me, but I guess if you were told by an angel to do something, I think you would pay attention, wouldn't you? Um, just as an aside, often when angels appear in the Bible, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. So I think <laughs> we would pay attention. So to Joseph, uh, Matthew tells us, this angel said to Joseph, she, will, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus, which is Jesus in the Greek, is a form of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. So it's a name that was quite common in those times. But what it means is Yahweh or God saves. This wasn't just a random name to be given to the baby. It was a name that was always planned. Excuse me. So next we look at the word Christ. Now I think we could be forgiven uh, in these days and age to think that Christ is just Jesus' surname. So I'm Emma Hosier, this is Jesus Christ. But actually Christ was not just a name, it was a title. It was the Greek Christos, which again is the translation of the Hebrew Meshiach or Messiah, which meant chosen, anointed one. And it refers to all the Old Testament prophecies of the one who would come to save God's people from their sin. Now, I make no apologies for looking into some of these words. It's partly, it's an interest of mine being a linguist. I find it really helpful um, because it's important when we look at things in translation to look at what the original meanings are. But in this instance, I think it really helps us to see the, the sort of the whole plan of God in this. So we're looking at these names that can be traced back from the New Testament to the Old Testament. These are not words um, just in isolation, but they are part of this plan. So when we confess and when we declare belief in Jesus Christ, it means not simply that we're acknowledging the man Jesus who lived at a certain point in history, but that we believe he's a promised saviour, this anointed one who was promised, God come down to earth to save us from our sin. The Apostles' Creed essentially revolves around him. The body of it is all about him. And for us, as Christians, he's the central focus of our beliefs. We call ourselves Christians because we are Christ followers. Okay, next, God's only son. So the title Son of God is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. It's saying that he is God. The fact that he's the son, is he's no way inferior to the father. 
But in the same way as my son is of the same substance and DNA of myself and my husband, Jesus the Son shares the divine nature of the Father. They are both God. Together with the Spirit, they are the Trinity, three in one, God in three persons. And James explained a bit more about this last week, so I'm not going to go there this morning. Um, But just as I said, it's just so important for us to recognize Jesus is God, as much as the Father is God, as much as the Spirit is God. So then next we arrive at this title of Lord, which is where we're going to spend the rest of this morning, looking at really what it means for Jesus to be our Lord. So Lord is a very small word in English, only four letters. But its meaning and significance in the Bible is far, far greater. So the title Lord in in the Greek, New Testament times, means Kyrios. And this is a word that's used around 700 times in the New Testament to refer to Jesus. And Kyrios means master, Lord, someone who is worthy of authority or reverence. It's somebody of high authority. It could be a sovereign, or it could even just be an employer, or in those times, a slave master. That was its day-to-day meaning in the Greek. But even more significantly for us, Kyrios is used by the New Testament writers to translate the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the name for God in the Old Testament. So whenever you read Lord, In the New Testament, it's the same word as Yahweh in the Old Testament. In fact, even more so than that, in Philippians 2, verse 9, it says that Jesus has been exalted and given the name which is above every other name. And that's what's being referred to. Yahweh is the name above every other name. And it applies to God the Father and also to God the Son. Calling Jesus Kyrios, or Lord, equates him to God the Father. So what I'm trying to do here in emphasizing this is just to show us that Jesus is God. And as our Lord, that means he is the one who's worthy of all our praise, our honor, our adoration, and ultimately our service. He's worthy of us laying down our lives to follow him. Let's have a little look at a biblical passage about Jesus. There's so many, obviously, that I could choose from, but we're looking at Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. The subtitle in your Bible may be The Preeminence of Christ. Preeminent means great, as in terms of awesome, superior to all things. Let's read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow, that's quite a picture, isn't it? Let's pick out a few things. So firstly, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. 
So Jesus, the Son, in human form, reflects the likeness of the Father. John 1 tells us that no one has ever seen God, but that God the Son, Jesus, has made him known. So Jesus embodies completely divinity and humanity. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he just sort of embodies these two things perfectly and harmoniously. There's no jarring. There's no sense of him being partly man or partly God. It's completely and perfectly and beautifully interwoven. And it's reinforced here in verse 19 where it says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Okay, verse 16, by him all things were created. So, So firstly, by him, by him all things were created. So he's creator. He is God. He was there in the beginning with the Father when the world was created. As echoes of John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And just remember James's preached last Sunday, God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, was there with him in this marvellous mystery. So I'm hoping that we're really beginning to see here that God the Son didn't begin to exist when in human form he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. He's always existed. And secondly, by him all things were created. So you see, God alone is not created, which means that all other things, all authorities, all powers, all dominions are subject to his authority. We heard that earlier in our worship time. It's not a sense of him being just a good man or better than the rest of us, but this just sense of him being high, so far above us. And again, at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So he's both the means, the creator, but also the recipient. So this is what we mean when we talk about the supremacy of Christ, that he is higher than every authority. He reports to no one. He's first and foremost, and all creation is made by his design and for his pleasure and purpose. See, verse 17, he's before all things, i.e. he's more important than all things, and in him all things hold together. Just this sense of it's just so not about us. So often, don't we, we just think ultimately it's all about us. But it's just not. It's all about him. And we see how this creed really helps us in that. It helps us to remember that everything focuses around Jesus. And we just lift our eyes and we see there's this overarching story of God's plan. He's there right at the beginning, a creation throughout the Old Testament. Okay, he's not mentioned by name Jesus, but we see the prophetic words coming again and again throughout the Old Testament. I love the Jesus storybook Bible, that phrase, every story whispers his name. And then the incarnation, he comes down to earth in human form. And then we read all about him through the New Testament, and then he dies He pays for our sin. And then again, at the end of the story, he comes again to judge the living and the dead. It's all about him. It really is all about him. And if it weren't enough to deserve our worship, our service, for him just to be Lord of all, he's also the instrument of our reconciliation to the Father. See verse 20. God was pleased through him to reconcile to himself all things making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus comes to earth in human form to rescue us by dying on the cross, 
taking all our sins, everything that separates us from the Father upon himself. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father until one day he returns again. Just pause. Okay, so what is our response then to all of this? Let's take another look at Philippians 2, 9 to 11, which I referred to briefly earlier. God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our response can only be to bow the knee, to recognize his authority, and to confess that Jesus is Lord. And the result of that is that the Father will be glorified. Okay, so you might be saying, I don't want to lose you here, you might be saying, okay, that sounds great, and that, yes, absolutely, but how does that actually look in practice? We need a bit of context here. So let's have a little look at, at some context So firstly, for the early church, the people that this was initially written to, what did it mean for them to declare that Jesus is Lord? For them, it literally meant giving up their lives. Theologian Jim Boyce tells us this. Citizens of the Roman Empire were required to burn a pinch of incense to the reigning Caesar and utter the words, Curios Kaiser, or Caesar is Lord. And it's this that the early Christians refused to do and for which they themselves were thrown to the wild lions or crucified. It wasn't that Christians were forbidden to worship God. They were free to worship any God with a small g they chose, so long as they also acknowledged Caesar. The Romans were tolerant of that. But when Christians denied to Caesar the allegiance that they believed belonged to the only true God, that's when they were executed. Do we have that allegiance to God? Do we carry that sense of he is the one, the true God? Declaring that Jesus is Lord was a radical thing to do. And it is as radical now as it was then, even if sometimes we don't think it is. Because when we declare that he's Lord, it means that no one else is. It means that his authority is superior Remember, it's above every created authority. And that's not a popular belief nowadays. I think it's unlikely that we are going to be put to death for our beliefs in 21st century Britain. But in some parts of the world, it's still extremely dangerous to to worship him. More recently, in the 1990s, several key leaders of the church in Iran were killed as persecution against Christians intensified. One of them, Mehdi Dibaj, gave this defence before the Islamic courts prior to his death. He said, I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the Almighty God is with me. Be called an apostate, but know that I have the approval of the God of glory. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honour of his holy name, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus my Lord and enter his kingdom sooner, the place where the elect of God enter to eternal life. I don't know about you, I'm hugely challenged on a personal level. 
by that. Because yes, I, I do believe that in my head and in my heart. But would I really do that if push came to shove? Lord, change my heart so that I would. So I want us to consider what radically following Jesus in our context looks like. Because as I said, I do think it is becoming harder to openly confess a belief in absolute truth. A belief in one God against this background of tolerance and acceptance where truth is deemed to be personal and not objective. Because if we are to reach our generation with the truth of the gospel, we need to be brave enough to take a stand for what we believe. You see, if you are a Christian here, I'm sure you wouldn't have any problem in saying, yes, of course I believe that Jesus is Lord. But are we actually living lives of radical obedience to Jesus that are demonstrating that we truly believe he is above all things? Because often our actions declare more loudly what we believe than our words do. Sometimes we need to look at our behaviour to see if we really do believe what we think we believe. So what does it mean in practice that he is to be Lord of our lives? It really does mean being prepared to die. Maybe not physically, but dying to self. Putting aside anything else that he might be Lord and King of our lives. David Henderson helpfully reminds us, in Christianity, the one place the self cannot be is at the centre. This is the rightful place of God alone. He must be of first importance in all matters. His voice must be the one that we're listening to, the one that we turn to. His directions are the ones that change our life and set the course for our lives. Where we live, where we work, who our friends are, practically how we manage our finances, what we do with our time, what we're watching on TV, Really, there's no part of our lives which should be outside of his rule and reign, and it's those things that actually demonstrate to the watching world how we live out our lives, saying that Jesus is Lord. Because, you see, contrary to the message of our society, our calling is not to self-fulfillment, but rather to self-denial. Declaring Jesus as Lord means a willing submission to his authority. It's a submission of our hearts, first and foremost, It's recognising that he's God and we're not. And that in order to follow him, we need to be putting him first. As John the Baptist declared in John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. So we need to lower ourselves in order that Jesus can take his rightful place. He's earned our devotion, hasn't he? He's earned our allegiance because he paid our redemption price. We do owe him our lives. He took our place on the cross when he died for our sins. But that's not the only reason that he deserves our allegiance. But he deserves it because he is our Lord. He is our master, our creator. He is the one to whom all honour and praise and glory is due. So referring back to my earlier question, what does it mean for him to be Lord of your life now? Surely this has to be more than a one-time recognition at the point of salvation that he died for us. Yes, that's the door. We need to, to confess and believe that Jesus is Lord in order 
to be saved. But I don't think that God's plan is for it to be left there. I don't believe his plan was just for the price to be paid and then for us to live in isolation with him. We've got our ticket to eternity. He wants relationship with us now. We know that we were all created to be worshippers, don't we? It's like we have this invisible throne in our hearts which was designed for God. But this morning I want to ask, is he still there? Is he still the one occupying that throne of your heart? Or have we demoted Jesus in our affections? Are there other voices that we may have allowed to get stronger? On the PA desk of your life, is Jesus' mic turned up the loudest? Or do you need to change those dials and slide those buttons, which I don't understand how they work? (laughs) Because you see, if Jesus is to be first... It means that we may need to unseat anything or anyone else who's been occupying that position. The Bible calls anything that's worshipped above God an idol and takes this very seriously. Now, I think most of us would look at our lives and say, of course we don't have idols. I doubt many of us have golden calves or statues of other gods in our house. If I came round for tea, you probably wouldn't be displaying them. However, if you do, please do get rid of them. (laughs) Um, But the thing is, idols are often not in of themselves bad things. They're just good things that have been elevated to a higher importance in our lives. What about our children, our spouses, our pets even, our jobs, our hobbies? Or what about our hopes and our aspirations, that desire to be married or to have that perfect house or to have more money. None of these things are are bad things in of themselves. But are these things becoming idols in our lives? Are we following them more closely than we're following Jesus? Matthew 5 challenges us that where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. So that where we invest our time and our money, that's actually where our hearts lie. So I want to ask this morning, is Jesus our treasure? Is he sufficient for us? Following Jesus can mean personal sacrifice. The disciples left behind homes and families to follow him. And whilst I'm not saying that we all need to get up and leave our homes and leave our families, it may be that some of us do need to make some radical changes and leave behind some familiar things that are causing us more harm than good and ultimately taking the place of Jesus in our lives. Maybe it's just a case of reprioritizing our time. But you see, it's always worth it in the end because we get so much more than we lose. In Mark 10, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, all those things again, and in the age to come, eternal life, because it's not just about the blessings of this life, it's about this bigger picture. So I'm not saying at all that we need to give up everything that's pleasurable in our life, that we all need to just sell everything and just live a life of complete poverty. It's not necessarily a call to to give up these things, but rather that we, first and foremost, must recognise that there's nothing, no matter how good or wonderful, is more important than following him. 
I love this C.S. Lewis quote. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. So you see, there's a, there is a cost sometimes, but it's worth it that the first things would be put first. And it's not just that, but it's this sense that actually as we bow down, as we lower ourselves, and Jesus is lifted up, we just get caught up in his purposes. And we actually get a far, far greater sense of purpose for our own lives because we too stop living for ourselves and we start living for him and wanting to follow him. And he walks with us and we become more like him. It's this process of sanctification. The more we spend time with him, the more we walk with him, the more our hearts become aligned to his heart and the more our eyes become attuned to see things the way that he does. And as we become less focused on ourselves, also we become more sharpened to see others in need around us. We're stirred to call out injustice, to fight against oppression, we just have much more gospel focus centered on our lives when we begin to demote ourselves. And we lift our eyes and we see that actually this life is not everything. It's mere moments against the backdrop of an eternity where we're headed to be with him forever. So let's put first things first. Let's put the one who is above all things first. That's what we're doing ultimately when we declare, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, my Lord.